Thank you, ladies. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and go with me back to 1 John chapter 4 this morning. 1 John 4. We've talked about it a few times by way of illustration. In fact, enough so that uh, one of you texted me this week asking if me and my family had seen some pictures that got published uh, because it's been kind of a thing of interest in our household to talk about what's going on with the James Webb Telescope. And uh, to see the pictures this past week were pretty fascinating. And admittedly, I don't really know a whole lot about what I'm talking about. I'm just intrigued by it. Uh, so if I say something wrong, you just have to bear with me uh, because I'm a pastor. I'm not a scientist, right? Uh, but to understand that, like, here's something that we spent 25 years developing uh, along the way, uh, just an incredible amount of money to send a million miles from the earth to take pictures is fascinating. And in my mind, I kind of thought, like, I don't know what will come back, but I expect to be disappointed. Like, I, I, I was just like, really, like a million miles away in space, it can't be all that interesting. I don't know. We'll see what happens. And I don't know if it's the work of the artist that touched things up or what, but I saw the pictures this week and I went, that's incredible. That's amazing. In fact, I saw a video somewhere along the way that was trying to explain uh, how small of a section of space this is compared to everything else around it. The video did not use this analogy, okay, so I don't know if this is accurate. It probably isn't because it comes from me. Uh, but in my mind, I pictured us standing here together, taking turns, holding up a needle and looking through the needle as though it was a telescope into space and going, here's your field of view. And look at this picture. How many of you saw the pictures this week? Okay, not as many as I thought. You need to go home and use Google or whatever and find pictures that came back and see that as we look through our little telescope that's just a needle into space, we see multiple galaxies in just that little sliver. That's mind-blowing to me. To think, okay, well, so what happens if you send something another million miles? Or what happens if you go the other direction, which probably is a challenge because of using the earth to block the sun and all that? I don't really know, but, um, you know, however they're doing that. To go, what else is out there? And as a believer, when I see that, I think the heavens declare the glory of God. Like, God, you are amazing. We've touched this psalm a number of times, but like Psalm 8, where, where the psalmist is like, God, when I consider what you've made, what in the world is man that you're mindful of him? God, when you can do that by speaking, and you care for me, why? I mean, that's amazing that God said, and it was. You know, again, we could go to numbers of texts, whether it's Psalm 19 that we already referenced, or even Romans chapter 1 that reminds us from the invisible things of creation, from the things of creation, the invisible things of God are clearly seen, even his eternal power in Godhead. To go, that testifies God. It communicates truth to us about God. And as we go to the scriptures again today, not just kind of left open to interpretation by mankind, but very directly spelled out in the revelation of God's word, we find out truth about God. 
right? For us, what is seen in that picture, apart from the help of that James Webb telescope, is invisible. Like, we can't see that. There's no way we would ever see that. And yet God has chosen in his mercy to say, let me reveal myself to you through my word. And yet even the text in front of us today, where we're going to pick up in just a few minutes, tells us no one's ever seen God. And yet, God has been so kind to us in revealing himself to us, yes, through nature, but even more specifically, revealing himself to us through his word. To say, here's who I am. One of the themes that we've hit last week that actually shows up in the verses that are in front of us this week, it's repeated both times, is this simple truth that when you want to understand, so who is God? What is God like? While you haven't seen him, you can know this, God is love. I would remind us, or perhaps if you weren't here with us last week, tell you for the first time that anytime we start a sentence saying God is, we'd better be very careful what follows that little linking verb, right? I, I use the example, you can talk about one of your loved ones and say, so-and-so is, and what you say after that matters. Like if you say they're angry, they might not want you to share that opinion. Okay? If you say they're awesome, maybe they want you to publish it everywhere. I don't know. Okay? But when we say God is, what comes next is really important. And God has chosen, even just through John in this little letter, to communicate truth about himself, to say God is light. And if you claim to know God, you'd better walk in the light because he is in the light. Now here in the text in front of us, he tells us God is love. And God is very concerned, not just for his testimony, but even more so for our assurance that if we are a child of his, that we also walk in love, whereby people ought to look at believers, true Christians, and know, you know what, they know God, or something's different about them at the least, because they love in an unbelievable way. We looked at uh, 1 John 4, 7 and 8 last Sunday morning to see this exhortation, this challenge that gets issued to say, hey, beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Like, love is to be the distinguishing, the distinguishing, not just a distinguishing, but love is to be the distinguishing characteristic of a child of God. We looked at that idea of love a number of different ways. I'll just remind you of a few, but when we look at that word agape, it means that it is going to be practiced volitionally. We're going to be making choices to love. It doesn't just happen, right? We talk about in relationships, oh, they fell in love. What we're commanded to do here doesn't just fall into. It doesn't just happen. Love happens volitionally, chosen. It happens selflessly to go, I'm going to do something that is better for someone else. I'm not worried about me. I'm worried about them. And that's the way in the family of God, among believers, we are to love one another. It doesn't just happen volitionally or selflessly. It happens sacrificially. It costs, right? That becomes clear in what we looked at last Sunday night that we'll review briefly in just a moment when we look at what Christ did for us to show us God's love. To go, I'm going to love volitionally. I'm going to love selflessly. I'm going to love sacrificially. I'm going to love continually because it's a present tense verb. And then finally, it happens mutually. It's among one another. 
no exceptions, all of us seeking to love and do what's best for each other. We do this for a number of reasons. One, love identifies the child of God, right? It's in the end of verse 7. Two, love evidences the grace of God because it, it comes from him. It is of God and God is love. So love identifies a child of God. Love evidences the grace of God. But love also points to the work of God. Because we took time last Sunday night to work through verses 9 through 11 and say, look at what God has done. You see love in a person through the incarnation. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. Like In this was revealed God's love towards us because he sent his only begotten son into the world. It's not just his work on the cross, although that certainly demonstrates his love, but even the humility of Christ coming to this earth demonstrates God's love in the incarnation. It's love through a person. He didn't just send another messenger. He had sent lots of prophets, lots of messages. He didn't just send a declaration from heaven. He sent his son to become a man, to say, here's my love on display. It's love through a person. We look, secondly, at salvation or love with a purpose that we might live through him, that he might give us new life in Christ. To substitution, how it occurred, love through propitiation, where Christ died for our sins. That he was the, both the offer of the sacrifice and the sacrifice himself that propitiated for sin. Again, the idea of that word propitiation means to satisfy the demands of the law so that justice is fulfilled and wrath is removed. To satisfy the demands of the law so that justice is fulfilled and wrath is removed. So we could say, if we know Christ as Savior, because of Christ's propitiatory work, we're no longer under God's wrath. We deserve God's wrath, but it has been removed from us because Christ paid for it all. That's the love that God has shown us through Christ. So it would only seem fitting then that in light of that love through Christ's person, in light of that love with a saving purpose, in light of that love through Jesus' propitiation, that it would lead to imitation on our behalf. Love is our practice, which is where he went in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Like, if you have the same personality, right? Like, if you have enough time in your schedule, if you have enough capacity, if you've gotten your me time in, if your love tank is full, right? All these kinds of things that we say, it, none of those are there. It's like, here's what Christ did for you. Here's what God did for you. And so, beloved, aren't you motivated, driven to love one another? That's where John has gone so far. And yet, when we come to our text today in verse 12, we hit this statement that almost seems out of place. I, I feel like it's me talking to my family where I'm kind of going through things and just talking, and then all of a sudden a thought comes in, and I just spit it out, and they're like, Dad, where, where did that come from? Um, that's the start of verse 12 right? Uh, because we've been talking about, we ought to love each other, and here's God's love for us, and we're going to come back to that thought, and right in the middle, it's like, hey, by the way, theological truth, no man has seen God at any time. Okay. 
And then we continue on, and it, it just says uh, there, if we love one another, God dwelleth in us, his love is perfected in us, hereby know that we, that we dwell. Like, okay, I got a doctrine of truth. I can write that one in my theology book. And yet, I believe it's familiar to many of you, perhaps to all of you, but I want us to see again how important that theological statement at the beginning is, of verse 12 is to the flow of thought that has been going on the whole time. Two general thoughts for us this morning with a number of some points along the way. Number one, let me remind you, your love reveals. Your love reveals. The opening statement of verse 12 says, no man has seen God at any time. We're pointed first under your love reveals to the reality of the invisible God. As Christians, we believe in, we serve an invisible God that has not been seen. Again, this is a statement that gets, or a truth, theologically, that gets repeated a number of places in Scripture. You could just go to Timothy's writings as one example. Uh, I think you're familiar with 1 Timothy 1.17, now unto the king, immortal, invisible, right? He's not seen. He's invisible. Later on in 1 Timothy 6, verse 16, he says, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. The reality is our God is invisible. He's shown us his love in sending his son Jesus Christ to live on this earth, this eternal word who was with God and was God, who made all things, John 1, 4. The word, that word was made flesh and dwelt among us, John 1, 14. But here we're being reminded, when we speak of God the Father, no one has seen God at any time. That is the reality of our invisible God. But then as we continue on, secondly in verse 12, we see the representation of the indwelling God. The representation of the indwelling God. We go back to the illustration that began with the James Webb telescope. Again, I don't understand how all this works, but if my words are semi-close to correct, it uses infrared technology to discern where light was coming from in space, even seeing through space dust and all of that, and go, there's something there, and it's kind of like this, and now we're depicting it on this image. To go, that's what's been detected there, light that we would never be able to see, that was not discernible by the eye, to go, there is infrared waves coming through all the space dust, and so it's shaped like this, and let's represent it here. We're not actually seeing it. We're seeing a representation of it given to us by a telescope that's a million miles away. Our text this morning is pointing us to something that is far more valuable, far more impressive, far more incredible, and yet even more unseen than that. It's saying, understand, no one has seen God, but if you're a child of God, you are to represent him to everyone around you. If we build our opening point out maybe a little bit more, we would say it this way, your love reveals the invisible God. Your love reveals the invisible God. That ought for every believer here to be a humbling, staggering reality. 
we don't really get a choice. Rather, it's a question of whether we will do that well, by the grace of God, for the glory of God, or whether we will do that poorly. Because he strongly made the point, here's God's love to you, now show love to others, but understand, no one sees God, but if God is in you, your love is going to paint a picture for everybody else. You know, again, in my mind, I wonder, so the images we got delivered to us through the news this last week, like, how accurate are they? Is that really the color it is, or is that just what the artist chose? Who knows? I suppose I can't really argue with them, right? But in the life of every believer, we ought to be picturing, representing. While you can't see God, here's a little glimpse of what his love looks like in the life of each Christian here, in the way that they love one another. You see, your love reveals, after the reality of the invisible God, we're pointed the representation of the indwelling God, and our love for one another displays the love of our invisible God. It's evidence that God is dwelling in us. The word perfected here speaks of something that's brought to its goal. It's completed. It's fulfilled, or it's filled full, we could say. It's accomplished. To say God's love and what he's done for us in Christ that we looked at in verses 9 through 10 is reached to its goal when it comes out of the lives of his children. I think G. Campbell Morgan used a good illustration to help us. He simply pictured that of a seed being planted in the ground and going, you know what, you don't see the seed, but you see what comes out of that seed. It, it holds the genetic makeup of that seed as it comes out of the ground where it starts to produce uh, the plants and then the fruit. You know, if we're God's children, God dwells in us. His spirit, as we'll see in a moment, is present within us. And what ought to come out of us if God is there is love. It's innate to who we are. John's already said something very similar to this in our study, and maybe a little more broadly in 1 John 2, verse 5. Whoso keepeth his word, whoso keepeth God's word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. So when we're obeying, God's love is working in us, being filled full. Hereby know we that we are in him, 1 John 2, 5. And then that familiar verse in verse 6, or that one that we emphasized, he that saith he abideth in him ought himself to walk even as he walked. So I'm going to conduct life the best I can to show Jesus to others as I obey God and seek to live in his love. Again, I would ask all of us this morning, if, if you know Christ as Savior, you believed on him, he's given you new life, his grace is operating, because none of this is something we just produce on our own. His grace is operating. What picture of God are you presenting? In the way that you speak to those in this room and others, in the way that you serve, in the thoughts that you think, like it's not just external things, like in the actual thoughts, what kind of picture of love if all were known, would be presented. Again, I, on the one hand, we could walk away going, man, I feel guilty. I just, okay, maybe that's what the Spirit of God has for you. But what I actually want to do is more point you to the side of going, well, man, if I'm going to do that, God, I need help. God, I need your grace. 
I am too selfish. I don't make that volitional choice, that selfless choice, that continual choice enough. God, I just need grace so that I would show you well, so that others could look at what's going on among believers at Bible Baptist Church and in other churches and go, there is God's love on display. Because God is invisible. But when we love, God dwells in us and his love is perfected in us. We represent the invisible God to the world around us. We've been encouraged to love one another. Why? Because first, your love reveals. Secondly, your love reassures. Your love reassures. One of John's themes, it's kind of woven through the letter that we've touched a number of times, is he wants these believers to have assurance so they will have confidence, so that they will obey in obedience, so that they will have assurance, so that they will have confidence before God, so that they will continue in obedience, so that they will have assurance. We saw that very thoroughly at the end of 1 John chapter 3 particularly. Now John returns to that same theme of assurance uh, to help us along to go, how do we know that we're saved, that we're right with God, that we're a child of His? Well, part of what helps us Love, the assurance of love by the work of the Spirit of God in us. Notice with me first as we look at this idea, your love reassures that that assurance evidences the presence of the Spirit. Assurance comes, it evidences the presence of the Spirit. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. Again, you can look back to 1 John 3, 24, what we saw there. Also what we looked at or just read a moment ago in 1 John 2, verses 5 through 6. But he's telling us and reminding us here that when we're God's child, he gives us his spirit. That spirit helps us with assurance. Once again, the word know here, we've hit a number of times, but it speaks of coming to know by experience. So here's how I am continuing to know, continuing to learn by experience, that God is dwelling in me because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Again, if we step up broader than just 1 John for a moment, it reminds you of two truths about the Spirit's work. First, there's the Spirit's assuring work of salvation. There's more than just these, but for us this morning, we'll just point to two. There is the Spirit's assuring work of salvation. Partly in view in 1 John 2, the verse that's in front of us right now, but again, you could go to Ephesians 1, particularly love that passage in verses 12 through 14 where he says that we should be to the praise of his glory who first trusted in Christ in whom that also after ye trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom that also after ye believed, okay, you've heard the gospel, you've believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession under the praise of his glory. To go, you, you heard it, you believed it, and so God has said, I'm going to keep my word. Here's a reminder, here's evidence. Here's my spirit indwelling you. The spirit's assuring work of salvation. Romans chapter 8, verse 16 points that same reality this way. The spirit also beareth witness in our spirit that we are the children of God. How do we know that we dwell in him, 1 John 4? What's the work of the Spirit also pointed to in Romans 8, verse 16? 
but beyond the Spirit's assuring work of salvation, I think very much in view in 1 John 4 is the Spirit's active work of love. If God's Spirit is in us, love is present. I'm tempted to put you on a quiz. We'll do that Sunday morning, right? Have to wake some of you up. But you know text that points this, right? Galatians chapter 5. We are told in verse 16 to walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Well, if we're walking in the Spirit, what fruit does the Spirit produce? It's multifaceted. It's a single fruit. But what's the first characteristic of that fruit listed? Love. Like when we're walking in the Spirit and the Spirit begins to produce fruit in us, what comes out of us is love with joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness, right? Love will come out. Love is not all that the Spirit produces, but the Spirit definitively produces love. Another text that points to the same reality is Romans chapter 5, verse 5, where he's been talking about, hey, if you're going through difficulty, your patience works experience, it works tribulation, works hope. But then we come into verse 5, he says, hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. God's love is shown into us through the work of the Spirit, so then it also shows out of us. Your love reassures that assurance is evidence of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Secondly, that assurance is grounded in your profession of Jesus. Right? He's kind of going back and forth as he's done a number of times to go, you need to love. Your love evidences the fact that you know God, that his spirit was, is within you. But remember, how you know God is what you've done with Jesus. It's your faith. Love reassures that assurance, though, is grounded in your profession of Jesus. If we have not professed faith on Jesus Christ as the Savior for sin... We cannot have assurance. We must believe Jesus was sent by God to die for our sins and rise again. Look at it. First in verse 14, we come to the testimony of the apostles. John, speaking on behalf of the apostles, is going to say, We have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He's like, we, we've told you. The Father has sent his Son. The reason Jesus came was to rescue from sin, to be the Savior. I like that word sent even again, perfect tense verb. It's like he has sent him, and the results continue now. He was sent to be the Savior, and he is still the Savior. That is why he has been sent. The effects still go on. I want you to think with me for just a moment what it means, though, for God to send his son to be the Savior, right? The rescuer from our sin. You know, I fear that sometimes what we're really good, glad about on the salvation side is, man, I'm glad God sent the Father to be the Savior from sin. That means I don't have to go to hell. I am saved from the penalty of sin. And that is awesome, worth rejoicing in. But can I just remind us, encourage us to think on the fact that God has also sent his Son to be the Savior of the world from the power of sin? The Romans 6 side of biblical truth to go, I am rescued. I am now dead to sin, alive to God. 
I don't need to continue any longer therein. I don't have an excuse when I'm being selfish and I'm not loving the way that God intends. Right? Salvation isn't just about forgiveness, although it is wonderfully about forgiveness. It's about deliverance. It's about change. To go, God, you need to be changing, transforming me. I need to be submitted to you so that your grace is working. We cheapen salvation if we only focus on forgiveness and not deliverance and personal growth. Having pointed to the testimony of the apostles, secondly, he points to the necessity of a profession. He points to the necessity of a profession. So here's what we have seen and testified, but then he says in verse 15, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. He starts so broadly, anyone, because again, he's savior of the world, puts some theological positions in a difficult spot when he is sent to be the savior of the world so that anyone, right? Yes, God elects, but God also says anyone. How you reconcile that? I'll leave that to God, right? He says, whosoever shall confess. It's that same word that's in 1 John 1, 9, homologeo, to say the same thing. So whoever confesses, whoever says the same thing as what's been said in the previous verse, that God has sent his son to be the savior of the world, that Jesus is the son of God, God dwells in him, he and God. That's how we are saved. That word confess in the original language, the tense means it's like point in time. Right? Because again, salvation does happen in an instant. We may not be able to pinpoint it exactly But there comes a point where we say, you know what, I'm turning from my sin, I'm believing on Christ for salvation, and in that moment, we are saved. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God. I find it interesting, again, there's that little word, that article, the. He's not just a Son of God, but he is the Son of God. Here's what happens, God then dwells in us. That's through the work of the Spirit once more. He's already said that two verses prior. God dwells in us and he in God. If we're here and we have never professed Jesus Christ, we've never agreed that God sent him to be the savior of the world, then all this other talk about love is pointless. We're not going to love as we ought. Our first need is to profess Jesus Christ. And again, if you're here and you've never believed on Jesus Christ as a savior for your sin, I'd encourage you to do that today to talk to God simply and say, God, I am a sinner who disobeys you. God, I do believe you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross as the savior of the world to rise again overcoming sin. God, would you save me? That's the urgent need for you. For believers here, for Christians, the text obviously, clearly then has a call to say, you know what, you need to keep loving. Why? Because one, your love reveals God. He's invisible, no one's seen him. But your love can reveal God. And as you love, it reassures you. Because God's spirit is working in you. Because you have professed Jesus Christ. And all of that gets wrapped up in this final verse, in verse 16. We've said love reassures. That's evidenced by the presence of the spirit. It's grounded in your profession of Christ. But third, it's affirmed by your practice of love. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us 
God is love. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. The theme has been repeated a number of times, but he says it once more, where he says, we have known. The idea is we've come to know and continue to know. Same idea in the verb believed. We have come to believe and continue to believe. Like, we came back here to know him. We came back here to believe on him. But it continues on to this day, the love that God has shown to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Because God is love. There's that theological statement echoed for us one more time. But not just so we can tuck it away in some doctrinal category and go, okay, I got it, God's love. I, I now know one of those things to say, God is, God is omnipotent, God is omnipresent, God is love. I, I have theology down. No, it's supposed to transform my life and yours. To go, so if I dwell in love, I dwell in God and God in me. End of the verse. He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we have an amazing opportunity to show one another and the world at large, here's what the invisible God looks like. Here's his love on display by the way that we treat one another. Let's pray. Father, once more it is humbling to consider that in spite of our sin and rebellion against you, our pride, our foolish sense of self-sufficiency, you've loved us at incredible cost of your son coming to this earth to ultimately in your plan die on the cross for our sins. Lord, we rejoice that he overcame sin through the resurrection. But Lord, now we have an opportunity to reveal that kind of love to the world around us, knowing that you are love. Lord, we stand in need of your help. We stand in need of your spirit to convict us when we are self-centered, when we don't show love to others. We certainly stand in need at the same time of your enablement, your grace, to help us to continually, sacrificially, selflessly choose to love one another. God, thank you for what you've done for us. God, we look to you for help and what you'll do in and through us. It's in Jesus' name we pray.